<laughs> All right, let's do a shit. This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. Today we're going to talk about if Bernie Sanders had a chance to win the whole damn thing, and we're going to continue on from our last episode with Chapter 2 on Education. And you'll get all this from a guy on the street perspective. All right, all right, before we begin, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. Make sure the notifications are turned on so you know when new episodes are out. And like our Facebook page and our Instagram page because we get lonely. Quick note to all my fans in the Philippines, Kenya is catching up. You guys need to step up and spread the word. I'll be honest with you, I still don't have a clue why people in other countries listen to this show. So here's the deal. If you are from any country outside of America, email me at nick at solvingproblemsandstartingnewones.com and I'll send you a free shirt. All you have to do is tell me how you found the show and why you're listening. I'm just dying to know. I can't let this, I can't let this mystery go. And if you have any, any ideas for shows, you can write about that too if you want. Send an email between now and till the end of, say, April 2020. And last thing before we get into the show, I have to give you the update on the 2020 presidential race of 2020. We're down to three remaining candidates. Yes, Tulsi Gabbard still counts. Tulsi is kind of like that six-year-old drunk chick, you know, at the bar who dresses like she's 20 and thinks she has a chance to, that someone's going to take her home. I mean, she's cool and all, and maybe if no one was looking, you'd vote for her, but, and you know, like maybe not tell anybody, you know? Either way, Tulsi, you're done. Go home. No one's voting for you. This year for Democratic voters is the year of the almost dead. One foot in the grave, one foot on the banana peel kind of dead. Klobuchar's gone. Mayor Pete, I don't know how to say his last name, so I'll just spell it. G-O-N-E. Gone. Bloomberg, he would have had a chance if he didn't bug the shit out of everyone in the country by running ads on everything that ever was. Thank Christ he's out. Elizabeth Warren is out because... Rather than going after the two dead leading candidates, she instead focused on attacking Bloomberg. Was she fighting for fourth place? Does she not know how this shit works? I think I'm going to go on a limb and say she doesn't have any political instincts. Just throwing it out there. And to make matters worse, she was going to put her support behind Bernie Sanders. And then she took it away. What an Indian giver. This has been your 2020 presidential election update of 2020. Moving on. Let's talk about the question that's on a lot of people's minds. Who can beat the orange man in the red hat? This month we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders and next month we'll talk about Biden. So could Bernie Sanders have won the whole damn thing? I'm saying could because as of this recording he's not faring too well. So before we can answer that we got to talk a little bit about personalities and bear with me on this one. So everyone has four basic types of personalities. The king, the warrior, the lover, the magician. And just to make it easier to remember, just think of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Leonardo was the king or the leader. Raphael was the warrior or the fighter. Michelangelo was the lover or the comedian. And Donatello was the magician or the inventor, or another way to look at it, a teacher. Now to all you listening to this, we all have these four types of personalities, but certain aspects stand out more than others. That's one theory, and hold on to that thought and let me explain another theory. The person who gets elected is usually the opposite of what came before. If you look at recent history and look at it objectively, who is the opposite of a relatively kind of boring individual as George Bush Sr.? You could easily say a more charismatic uh, Bill Clinton. Well, who is the opposite of him? 
You could say a cowboy like George W. Opposite of him, Obama. And who is the complete opposite of him? The orange man in the red hat, of course. So the question is, who is the opposite of the other Mr. T? Is it Bernie? Now let's use my first theory and look at three out of the four personality types, leaving out the king or the leader part, because having a good balance between a fighter, a comedian, and a teacher is what makes a good leader. And let's take a look at Obama, this current president, and Bernie. Was Broccoli Obama a good fighter? What about Trump? And who do you think Bernie would be more like? How is Trump as a teacher? I've heard he uses the best words. Is Bernie going to be more like him or Obama? And lastly, as far as someone who, who can make a room laugh, Trump can make one side laugh. Obama was good at making the other side laugh. Sanders, on the other hand, needs some better writers. I mean, he's got a quick wit, but... Now, all that boils down to one big question. Is Bernie the opposite of Trump? Personality-wise, yeah. So that is a point in his direction. And that was an awfully long way to go to answer that question. With that being said, the reason people vote the opposite way sometimes is because of fatigue. People get tired of the same bullshit from the same bullshit direction. In 2016, the pendulum swing was at, say, 3 o'clock in favor of Republicans, with them having control of the majority of governors, senators, House members, and the presidency. In 2018, it swung to, say, 6 o'clock, giving Democrats control of the House members. In 2020, is the pendulum swing going to swing further to the left or get stuck at 6 o'clock, or, bad news for some of you, swing backwards. That's not likely, but not impossible, especially when members of Congress would have to defend Bernie's socialist positions. And the people in the vast majority of swing districts that are controlled by Democrats may not go along with it. Once Biden became the frontrunner, you could hear the sigh of relief from the party. So if he did win the candidacy, that was going to be a major hurdle for the blue team. Now here's another problem for Bernie or any Democrat pushing a more expansive government. And it's something nobody is talking about except me. And that is the Libertarian Party. Trump won Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan by a total of 77,704 votes. A razor-thin margin. But what people don't point out is the large number of Libertarian voters. The grand total between those three states was 475,000. The one thing Libertarians hate is big government. And if you don't think libertarian voters are going to hold their nose and vote for someone they don't like to avoid something they hate, you're not thinking at all. And that could potentially be over 400,000 voters Bernie would need to pick up in just those three states. And as time has pointed out, so far, young voters aren't showing up in record numbers like Bernie thought. But there is something that does work in Bernie's favor, and that is the orange guy in the red hat. Sanders does a far better job as a teacher of socialism than Trump is a teacher of capitalism. Trump is a better fighter in general, but he is likely to get himself outsmarted. He would have to say more than socialism bad to win the argument. Right now, our healthcare system is already under a lot of government control, as I pointed out in episode 7. It's not that tough to point out how much the government really just sucks at stuff, and giving over complete control would only make matters worse. But it's tough to combat a message of free Medicare for all with not Medicare for all. I mean, what is the opposing plan? It's also tough to say Bernie's plan would increase the deficit when you yourself are increasing the deficit. You actually need solutions. So, could Bernie have won the whole damn thing? Uh, no. I wouldn't see him overcoming libertarian voters who will probably swing right this election. 
And right now it looks like we're not going to find out this year. But don't give up hope yet, Bernie fans. Biden could, you know, die. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Well, here's a few seconds of a Ninja Turtle song for you. And that's all we could afford. Before we hop into the next segment, if there's any artist out there that wants to work on a children's book called The Orange Man in the Red Hat, let me know. I'm telling you, the title alone is a bestseller, and it writes itself. I did not sleep with that woman because she is too fat, said the orange man in the red hat. I will make Mittens the head of the FBI, even though she's a cat, said the orange man in the red hat. Easy money, people. Let's do this. All right, let's get into something more serious and continue the talks about the problems in the education system. Pretend for a moment you were the principal of a school. Imagine there was a student in your school that came from a middle school where you needed adult supervision at all times. What if he carved a SWAT sticker in his desk? What if he caused over $1,000 of damage in a bathroom? What if he racially abused black kids and got into fistfights with them? What if he's known for throwing desks across the room? What if he would throw hard objects at other students with the intention of injuring them? What if he brought dead animals to school? What if he punched his mother in the teeth and punched her mother's teeth out? What if he brought knives and a backpack full of bullets to school? What if he wrote kill over and over in his notebook? What if he threatened to rape the female students? What if he threatened to shoot the teachers and the students? What if the student did all these things? As a principal, would you allow this student in your school? For the safety of other students, would you have him move to another school to get the help he desperately needs? I would like to think the answer is pretty obvious. So why was the Parkland shooter who did all these things I just mentioned allowed in that school? Why was every instance reported to the school administrators and not to the police? This is Education Chapter 2, Kindness for the Cruel. So how did this happen? Like a lot of things with the best of intentions. About 40 years ago, before the violence in schools swelled, there was a law that made sure a child with disabilities received the same education as their peers. This law was aimed at children with Down syndrome. In 2011-2012 period, a step forward was taken in Florida. Broward County, where the school shooting took place, had the highest number of student arrests in Florida. Robert Runcie, the superintendent, stated that this was because of institutional racism. So he started a program called Promise. The program required agreement from the parents or a judge before the school would be allowed to transfer a child with disabilities to a more therapeutic school. But the word disabled took on a more broader definition, not just geared towards harmless children with Down syndrome, but also kids with violent behavioral issues. The kids are allowed to be educated with their peers until it proves impossible. One example was a teacher had to take out a restraining order against a student, a violent student, before they could be removed from that school. And this was done, and the whole program was done to break the pipeline from school to prison. And as a consequence, the police are prevented from getting involved in incidents they would previously would have handled. Soon after the Promise program began, the Obama administration got involved. And the reason was they saw the results after one year a 70% decrease in crime and arrest among young kids, and a 70% decrease in school suspensions. After that, a letter was sent out by his administration advising school superintendents nationwide 
that racial disparities in suspension rates would be grounds for finding the school in violation of federal anti-discrimination laws and therefore at risk of losing federal funding. The problem is these numbers aren't real. Discipline was restricted. In order to discipline a student, tons of documentation were required. Plus, teachers were told directly to avoid sending students for punishment so that the school's image would not be tarnished. And now, teachers, getting, teachers are getting physically and verbally abused. All these things have skyrocketed because there's a lack of discipline, a lack of repercussions. This is not their job to take abuse. They are not paid enough to take this shit. And they can't do anything. From what teachers have told me recently, all they can do is make sure there's documentation of any incidents. And it typically goes nowhere. Right now, all the lawmakers really care about is the, the arrests have plummeted. But they don't care about that, the fact that the behavior hasn't changed at all. Instead, a culture of leniency is taking place where these kids are not held accountable until they graduate high school. And surprise, surprise, crime and arrests have gone up for people 18 to 25 in Boward County and among other counties. Had they been disciplined at an early age, they would have had a chance of avoiding going down a wrong path. What we have instead is a school, instead of a school-to-prison pipeline, we have an after-school-to-prison pipeline. And a quick side note, what does the genius state of California do after knowing all this? You'd think they would learn something, you know, from Florida. In July of 2020, it will be illegal to suspend disruptive students. Brilliant. And all across the country, it's becoming more and more difficult to punish bad behavior. And what does that do? Disruptive kids don't learn anything. The students they disrupt don't learn anything. And at its most extreme, some asshole steps out of an Uber, Uber with a rifle bag and walks directly into a school and shoots 17 people. The schools are labeling kids with bad behaviors the same way they would label someone who's dyslexic. Then they are given special treatment. One child in Palm Beach County, who was labeled as having poor anger control, was recommended to be transferred to a therapeutic behavioral school. His parents said no. It wasn't until he flipped over a table with an attached chair, breaking a student's leg, that he was finally removed, but only for 45 days under federal law. Students with violent tendencies are given more rights than the students they endanger. By all accounts that I've read, the Parkland shooter was actually thriving in Cross Creek School, which is a school for kids with severe emotional disorders. They, they had smaller class sizes, uh, nurses were there to make sure the students were taking their medication, and counselors who know how to handle emotional students. But the Parkland shooter didn't want to be in a special education school. He wanted to go to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and his mother supported the move. And because of the laws that were in place, the district allowed it. In the following year, he would fall apart, attempting suicide, starting fights, and all the things I mentioned in the beginning of the segment. And the school would continue to give him special treatment. For example, when he threw a tantrum in class, the teacher would tell the students to leave the classroom and the teachers and students would wait in the hallway until he was done breaking whatever he could in the classroom. He clearly did not belong there. He clearly needed help. He clearly needed to be removed. But he didn't, and a year later, he would return with an AR-15. So who do you blame? School administrators for not reporting dangerous situations to the police, which allowed the shooter to have a clean record? The mom for her willingness to put the students in danger? The Obama administration for advocating and spreading these laws that simply do not work? The shooter, how much blame do you really put on him? Or do we just forget all this and focus on the AR-15? 
So, how do you solve this? Well, in Florida, parents are definitely doing what they can because they know the kings and queens on top aren't going to do shit for them. Over half the state's students go to a charter school or a private school, and the public schools currently have the lowest enrollment numbers in the last 18 years, and the trend is growing. But here's another thing to focus on. Do we continue this culture of kindness for the cruel so they can be cruel to the kind? Or should we get in our heads that discipline is not abuse? Discipline is in between compassion and punishment. To parents, teachers, and the community at large, there needs to be some rationale that you are the first to discipline. You are the first authority for young kids. And the second authority is the police, then the judge, then the warden. And that's all I got for you. Next month, we're going to continue our look at the education system. Like, follow, share the show, leave a five-star review. This was Solving Problems. Starting new one. See you around. That all makes sense? Were you even listening?